This is the Mark Stucheski Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Mark Stucheski Podcast. Before we get started, have you gotten your copy of my top five productivity tips? It's my gift to you. Just go to top5productivitytips.com. That's the number five, top5productivitytips.com. And I do over deliver. So there's more than top five productivity tips, but uh, you get the gist. Anyways, go there, get the tips, and you'll be happy. Meredith Persley is founder and CEO of Aspire at Work, an executive coaching and leadership development firm in Washington, D.C. She is also the co-author of Six Paths to Leadership and teaches at American University in their key leadership program. Meredith, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mark. I'm glad you're here because we're going to be talking about leadership. And according to you... There's more than one path that leaders should be on. But before we get started, is there anything that you want to let the audience know about you to fill in the gaps before we get started? I guess the most important thing to know is that my work is based on multi-sector experience. So I work in the government sector, the nonprofit sector, and of course, the corporate sector. And so as we talk about leadership, one of my goals is to make sure that the assumptions we make about leadership apply to many different contexts. Excellent. Now, if you've never watched or listened to the show, because the show is now available on YouTube, because I learned as I was sharing the Meredith a couple weeks ago that YouTube is the number one place people watch podcasts. I don't get why people like watching Talking Heads, but the the mass has spoken. I will tell you that I am feeling a little under the weather today, so this is not my normal voice. Hopefully, I won't sneeze on camera. That would be very unsightly, but we'll just we'll just make the best of it. So, Meredith, you are my guest on the show today. Where would you like to jump off and begin talking about leadership today? I'll let you make that choice. Well, I guess I would I would start with the research that that we've done on paths into leadership positions because. I hope that that has been, you know, the most important contribution I've made to the thinking on leadership. And again, um, helping to make concepts, stories, strategies around leadership to apply to all different types of leaders. And so I'll just quickly share with you what I mean when I say six different paths into leadership or our book, Six Paths to Leadership, which is the path into a leadership position. And of course, there are so many different lives that people live, and we would never be able to classify all of those into six paths. But when we're talking about six paths, it is promoted, hired from the outside, elected into a leadership position, appointed, so political appointees and board appointees, family legacy, so a leadership position gained through you know a family line of business, and then finally founders, so those who found a, a company and then rise into a leadership position through um, you know through an entrepreneurship path. You know those paths are very interesting because I'm right now I'm listening to Kelly Ann Conway's book about her you know getting Donald Trump elected president, and she's talking about when you get to be president the, the what you have to do is you have to start giving people jobs and yeah. you're appointed and some people have to be approved by the, the Senate and some people are just named. And you know, I don't think people think about that in terms of leadership. They think of, okay, I worked my way up to the ranks. Now I'm a leader and you didn't really, you were, I guess you were appointed or maybe hired in that position, but you know, now that you listed the six paths to leadership and certainly these are not exhaustive, it makes me think because I know people who are what they are because the family's been doing it for a hundred thousand years mm -hmm. and maybe, and here's the interesting thing. I love to know your thoughts on this. Some people 
are doing a job because the family wanted to do the job, but they are good at the job, but they don't want to do the job. They want to go do something different. And I find that dynamic very interesting because yeah. you're doing a job just because mom said you should do it or dad said you should do it, but maybe you don't want to do it. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of, that's an interesting dynamic, is it not? Honestly, of the six paths that we researched, that family legacy path was by far the most interesting to me because some of the dynamics, just like what you just said, are so unique to that path. And one of them is, are the individuals who are named as leaders of their family legacy organizations, do they want that position? Was there competition for that position? Um, and how are those choices made? And they're very complex, right? Because if, if a parent tags you as that next generation leader and you don't really want it, how do you have that conversation? <laughs> yep. And then also what happens when the sibling is appointed to the position that you really wanted, right? And how do you have that conversation? And so those were some of the most complex paths. And I actually, you know, I think we actually initially were calling it the inherited path. And the people we spoke with had huge issue with just the fact that we called it that, you know, these are not positions that are inherited. They're actually can be quite competitive among family members for who gets to be in that CEO position. But you can only imagine how complex the choices are as G1, they call it the G1, G2, G3, you know, from the founder through multiple generations of a family um, a family business. You know, it's interesting. One of the people I followed many years ago was Dave Ramsey, and he started the Lampo Group, I believe. And so he's the founder, he's the CEO, he's the big guy. But he's got daughters that work for him. Mm -hmm. And what I think is interesting, the way he structured it is these people, these daughters of his, can never go to directly him like saying, Daddy, my boss wrote me up. And, and I'd like to know your thoughts on that because he wanted to make sure that the leaders he put over his family have authority. If they If they know that the kid can just go to Daddy who owns the company, well, then you have a weak structure. So what are your thoughts on a company that's run like that where the parent does not allow the kids to go directly to them and complain? I mean, that that certainly sounds like, you know, one norm that might be helpful. A lot of times they are the direct reports, though. A lot of times the entire C-suite is family or many people. So you wouldn't necessarily be able to put in something like that just across the board. What we found in, in our research is the family businesses that have robust governance systems in general are going to be better off, right? Mm -hmm. And and that those systems need to be put in place separate from the individual circumstances of one particular generation. And so some of the practices that I love the most were, you know, things that help to take some of the bias out of out of the situation, um, in particular, companies that would have criteria for a family member to assume a leadership position of a certain level. And so, for example, they had to have X number of years in another company, perhaps okay. even another industry. They had to have lived abroad. If it was a global company, they had to have spent some time abroad. Some of them had, you had to be promoted outside of the family business before you could be put into a position. I think that makes a lot of sense. 
also just for the self-confidence of the leader that they know that they can succeed outside of their family preferences. Those governance documents are usually not just put together by the family members. But again, another sort of best practice is that the board has some combination of family members and non-family members to help bring a little bit more objectivity to the process. Because again, you know, the goal is to not make things so complicated and heavy where the relationship of the family is embedded in every single decision to be very, very challenging in running. You know, some of these companies are quite large and they're dealing with with tough decisions every day. Okay. So that's the family legacy path. Yeah. Uh, so we have elected. Now, elected, we, we think uh, probably talk about politics, right? We think about electing a congressman, electing a president, electing a governor. Correct. But that's not the only thing you can be elected to, correct? Those not the only leadership paths. Well, we define the elected path as as being elected by, you know, some kind of a democratic process. And okay. so, you know, if you were elected to be president of a club, you know, that would probably many, many of the pros and cons of the path would apply as well. But the interviews that we did were all, you know, elected through our democratic system. So local government and federal government um, individuals. I don't think I would ever want to run for president because by default, half the country doesn't like you. And I don't like to not like people. And there's so, so much divisiveness and so much mudslinging. I think I'll just be a voter in, in the political system. I mean, my head goes off because someone's got to be congressman. Someone's got to be president. Someone's got to be governor. Someone's got to be lieutenant governor. But for me, I don't know. It's 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 not worth it for me. I love my country, but it's not worth it. All the stress and anxiety that comes with it. I mean, you look at presidents from the day they they take the oath of office and the day they leave. I mean, they've aged like 15, 20 years. It's not for me. I know some people like that thing. Mm, not for me. So if you want to be elected to a political office, even the highest office in the land, my hat goes off to you because that's so not my calling. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's a really unique leadership path and it's really not for everybody. And that's, you know, for each of the different paths, we, we explain what are the pros and cons or the opportunities and challenges. And one of the key challenges is what you just spoke about, which is the work life balance, the public scrutiny, you know, the complete loss of any privacy. <laughs> And the toll that that takes on families is is really quite remarkable. You know, even for an ineffective member of Congress, the toll that it takes on the fan, let alone one who's really working overtime and 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 trying to get the work done. And so we give tips on how how to manage that. A whole section on on managing the spouse and like how to involve the spouse in your leadership and set that spouse relationship up for success because it's unique the role it's true you know spouses ceo spouses often have some kind of a public role they might you know depending on 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 what that executive chooses but really the elected path is the main place where the spouse is also you know part of that story and um that can be really um, a positive thing for somebody's lease. You can use it for their benefit, but it can also really present tremendous challenges for for the leader. I've never had the paparazzi outside my home taking pictures when I'm yeah. shopping, and I don't want the paparazzi taking pictures of me. Maybe when I'm speaking on the stage, but that's not really the paparazzi. So let's talk about appointed. So there is a there's a gray area, unless I'm misunderstanding this, between elected and appointed, because obviously, as we alluded to earlier. 
one of the first things a new president does is he appoints people to different cabinets. So talk to us about the difference between elected and appointed leadership. It's interesting you call it a gray area. So we actually call the appointed path the proxy path because the power of the appointee comes from the principal. And so I wouldn't say that there's a connection between the elected and the appointed, but it's actually a very clear distinction. But, you know, in many ways, the mandate of the appointed is to reflect the desires and wishes of the principal, Right. And again, that power comes from that principle as well. And one of the things we, there's so many things we talk about in that chapter that, again, are super unique. I mean, one thing that I don't think the public knows uh, a lot about is just the time frame of these positions. So, you know, these are positions where you're managing, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars sometimes of, of budget. Um, certainly if you start thinking about secretaries of agencies. And, you know, most CEOs don't really get into their groove until three years down the road. Well, political appointees are done by then, right? <laughs> they need to think about from day one, how are they going to add value for the principal, right? We introduced, we um, interviewed the former um, secretary of HHS, who's, you know, she came in under Obama. And when she came in, healthcare.gov was having its initial challenges. And, you know, sh- her job, day one, get that thing up and running, right? There's no, you know, six months to onboard and learn the role, (laughs) right? You've got critical things with real lives that are, you know, Department of Defense, you could be dealing with a war the next day. And so, you know, very high stress, high responsibility positions. And, you know, your agenda is is about reflecting the agenda of that principle. A little bit lower down, the average tenure of a political appointee is only 18 months. And there's a bunch of different reasons why we might have that. But um, one of the things we talk about is the people who work just under the political appointees. Um, They're called the GS-14s and 15s in the federal government. And that's about a pay scale and responsibility scale that's used in the federal government. They call themselves the Weebies. The Weebies means we be here before you, we be here after you, (laughs) right? And you can imagine the dynamic of these long timers who are really, really critical for the running of our federal agencies. Mm. But then you have people coming in with the decision-making authority, you know, for 18 months. And your job as a senior government official is to inform these individuals in ways that they can make these really critical decisions. And that whole negotiation between the senior professional staff and the political appointees. And some people go back and forth, by the way, you know, some very nonpartisan positions, people will be a 1415 move into a political appointee position under one administration, move back down into a 1415. So, you know, there is movement there, but then many of those positions are highly political. And it's much more about, you know, their, um, in their relationship with the president and the president's office, as well as, you know, what they might Um, the connections they might have with the legislative branch, which is, you know, the triangle that really works to get things done in our government. Do you feel overwhelmed and frustrated? Are you under a lot of stress? There's a better way. You only get one life. So why not feel peace and freedom and enjoy your life? You can find out more at 90 days to busting overwhelm.com. I saw a video maybe about three or four years ago where they were talking about a chef at the White House that was there for like six or seven or eight presidents. And 
Now, they were a leader in terms of, you know, the servants of serving whoever was in the White House. But I mean, I would love to sit down with this gentleman. And, and I mean, all the things he's seen over all these administrations, because like you said, the other people came and go. He just stayed there. Yeah. And and the staff to stay there. And I would oh, I would love to have him on my podcast. I think we would learn so much about what really happens in the White House because you know, the people who are in the Oval Office and the vice president, they get all the press. No one cares about the people who have been working at the White House for 20, 30 years. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> Actually, I not quite the chef, but the but Obama's photographer um, wrote a book. So maybe you can get him on your podcast because first of all, he shows the pictures that many of the public have never seen, but you can only imagine what it's like to follow a president. I can't remember if he followed him for all 8 years, but it was significant and it's incredible, incredible book and and really incredible stories of what he was able to see. Wow. In that role. Yeah. Okay. So we talked about elected, appointed, and family legacy. And we kind of hinted at founder. Let's talk about promoted now. When Now, the old joke is, now, before I was fired from my corporate job back in 2005, I worked for a corporation. And the joke was they would promote people to get them out of the way. Now, I don't know how true that is, but I can tell you the place I worked at before I was fired, that was the case. This person was in the way, so they promoted him, and he was he was a glory seeker. If you gave him a great idea, he would go to his boss and say it was his idea. Is that is that really is that a minor issue, or do you think that happens more than we're aware of, where people are promoted just to get them out of the way? I think that's a minor issue. Okay. I think people are I think people are moved into other departments to get out of the way, okay. but I think few organizations actually reward poor performance with a promotion and more money. That's good to know. <laughs> so the bigger trend that that is quite real for leaders is that people get promoted for the job they did and not necessarily for the job they can do. Ah. Right? And so the reason why star performers often fail when they're promoted from within is because just because you were good at the last job doesn't mean you're going to be good at the next job. Probably the easiest example of that is being a great salesperson to being a great sales leader. Mm. Extremely different skill set to move from that one to the other. And so, you know, certainly in my executive coaching, I do a lot of work in helping people to get ready for that next role. And, you know, it, it requires new sets of goals, right? Your performance is measured totally differently in those leadership positions because your success is through others as opposed to what you do personally, right? But, you know, how you spend your time, your habits, all of those things usually change, especially the higher up you get into organization. And are you able to successfully make that turn? And it's not just about yourself, right? So the first thing is you have to behave differently. You have to think differently. You have to act differently. But that means the whole system has to also adapt to this new position as well. When people come in from the outside, that part is a lot easier, the outsider path. But on the insider path, it's like, I used to go to lunch with you all the time. Now you're, you, you know, we were peers, we we're hanging out, we're, you know, we're talking about the boss together. Now all of a sudden, one of us is promoted, <laughs> right? 
our relationship has to change, but also suddenly you don't have time to brainstorm with me about my day-to-day challenges because you're having to operate with your peers and your managing up is different. And so, you know, again, you have to not only make your own shifts and be intentional about that, but think about how do I help the system to also adapt to my new role? That's a very good point because I I know people, I've been in situations like that where one of us got promoted and you're right, the relationship does change because now, now I never had a situation where the person became my boss, but they had supervisory role going to another department and they weren't like directly my boss. I can't imagine what it'd be like in the instance you talked about where two people, one gets promoted, now the one person's your boss. That would be really awkward, and that really that really tests how strong your friendship is because now this person used to, like you said, probably talk to the boss about the boss. Now is your boss, yeah, and you know, and now they know that everybody talks about the boss because everyone talks about the boss. Even I talk about the boss, which means I talk about myself, (laughs) right? Exactly. And add to that, both of us applied for the job. I think ah, yes. I think I'm better at that job. I would have been a better pick than you. <laughs> so not only are you my friend, but I also think I'm better. And now you're my boss and I have to listen to you. This is extremely common, right? It's sort of, it, it, the, the term used is managing former peers, right? And that's a big part of our chapter. How do you make that transition? I'm sure a lot of friendships are broken because one – you both apply for the job. One gets it, you don't. And now you're not going golfing on the weekends. You're not going to the shooting range. You're not going to the ball game anymore because now there's this conflict because now you got picked over me. Now you're my boss. Yeah, absolutely. And and it, and, and you don't necessarily even have to be friends, but it's just, you know, you were coworkers mm-hmm. and now you're my boss. You know, one of the things that we talk about is when you get into a new position, you're promoted to a new position, you are so focused on your own success, your own growth, what you need to learn. But one of your top priorities needs to be who on your team do you want to retain? Because that individual who thought they should have gotten the job is your biggest retention risk. And you know what? It might be okay for that person to move on because leading that individual might be that difficult for you. But if that person is key to the team's success, you know, again, one of your first priorities needs to be, I want you here. How can I make this exciting and interesting for you? I really value you making sure that they know that. But again, a lot of new leaders, or I'm sorry, a lot of people who are into new leadership positions get very self-involved and forget those key messages that they need to give to their team. Right. Or they're, or they're so insecure about what that new relationship is going to look like. They're kind of afraid to talk about it. And yet the ones who do this successfully just go right in. Hey, Mark, I know that we are both looking, you know, wanted this job. And, um, I think you would have done a great job. And I'm really grateful that I'm getting the opportunity to do it. Let's talk about how I can keep you on this team and, and make, make this a great experience for both of us and having that conversation day one. And the final path that you talk about in your book is hired. So give us some, your thoughts on that. Yeah. So that's the outside hire, you know, again, promoted and outside hire probably are the two most common, you know, as we think about paths into leadership. I think there are a number of things that are important about that path. You know, there is a perception that 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 selection of the outsider was at least done through a more competitive process, right? And so there, you do get some credibility. One of the biggest challenges is usually 
when you bring in someone from the outside, it's because the expertise doesn't exist within the organization or the experience doesn't exist. And a lot of times that means change, right? It means you want a new, you want someone to bring in new culture, a new strategy, has experience in you know, growing the organization at a different level. And so those individuals not only are having to be accepted as new leaders, but they tend to be responsible for change initiatives pretty quickly, and they can be called a change agent. And oftentimes in the interview process, right, the senior people, the board, the people who are excited about the change are really pumping you up on all the great things you're going to bring to the organization. But then you arrive in the organization And that doesn't mean people want change, are excited about change, and so, or even know about the change sometimes, right? And so, you know, the, a lot of the challenges of the outsider, we call it the outsider path are, you know, also challenges of general, like leading change initiatives in organizations. And one of the things we talk about is, you know, how to be humble in that process, because Mm -hmm. it's very easy to say, well, it, so you, you know, you go to the number five in the, in the marketplace, but you came from like the number one or number two. And so it has this certain amount of prestige, but it can also come in as really arrogant and out of touch. And so, you know, how do you give a nod to the things that are working well in the organization? And how do you reference the things that you're bringing in in a way that isn't kind of arrogant and condescending is really important. We tell a story of, of an individual who, you know, was constantly referencing their former employer, you know, well at X company, we did this. And at X company, we did that. And it just gets exhausting after a while, right? <laughs> and then the other thing that we found, which is kind of obvious, but it was it was still a like a, wow, I hadn't thought about that, is when you come from the competition, these individuals were used to hating you, <laughs> right? And then now you're trying to say, wait, but now I'm one of you. <laughs> mm, you know, it's kind of like when, you know, there's, you know, someone from the Red Sox goes to the Yankees. I mean, it's yeah. still going to be, you know, even if we think that person is a great pitcher, it's going to take a little time before we see them as one of us. I'm not great with sports analogies, but I think that might be challenging. No, I th- I think I I really appreciate you bringing it up because as you were talking there, you know I'm watching the the NBA Finals right now and there's a player on the Golden State Warriors who is kind of like um, an instigator, right? And so all the people in Boston hate him, but if he was traded to Boston, they'd be like, hey, he's one of us now. It's just funny how that dynamic works. So so the book is called the six paths to leadership. So where can people get the book? How can they find out more about what you're doing in the world and you know all that stuff? Give us give us the details there. Well six paths to leadership is found at all major booksellers. Um, Amazon, <laughs> of course, is the one that'll get it to you the next day. Uh, but yeah, you should be able to to find it on on all um, major book websites at this point. It's um, published by Palgrave Macmillan, and so universities also have um, even more open access to the book, which is great. My company, Aspire at Work, and please find me on LinkedIn, Meredith Persley, as well as on Twitter. Excellent. Well, Meredith, I want to thank you for being on the show today. It was fascinating talking about the six paths to leadership. And we talked about some things I never even thought about before. So it's very fascinating. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Mark. 
And before we go, I just want to say thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Mark Stuchowski podcast. I know that there is an endless stream of options for you in this day and age, but you took the time to listen to the episode, and I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Don't forget to head on over to top5productivitytips.com and get my gift to you, my top five productivity tips. Remember, it's the number five in top5productivitytips.com. They will serve you well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We'll see you again real soon.